welcome. Um, as is customary with um, with Buddhist teachings, we begin with um, going for refuge and setting our motivation for the teachings, um, for doing the practice. Um, within the broad range of Buddhist teachings and Buddhist practices, um, going to going to teachings and studying sutras and reciting sutras are all valid forms of practice in their own right. So. Um, Practicing Buddhism is not limited to meditation practice or reciting a mantra or something like that. Um, coming to a teaching and participating in a gathering is a is a form of Buddhist Buddhist practice, and we always begin with um, setting refuge, uh, going for refuge, and setting motivation. Um, when I go for refuge, I like to think about what refuge means to me. Um, I when I'm when I'm doing more of like a liturgy or like a or a daily practice, I will recite a refuge prayer, which is quite customary. Um, I recite a refuge prayer in English, but you'll also hear them in Tibetan, Sanskrit, or Chinese, depending on what type of Buddhist community you're hanging around in. But um, I like to think of the sort of philosophical principles of Buddhism as much as the sort of ritual practices and the meditation practices. So when I think of going for refuge, I, you know, the, this this word refuge is kind of an unusual word in English. Uh, I was thinking the other day about when do we actually see this this word refuge sort of in our daily life. And uh, I remember the last time I saw it was uh, at a school building where there was a big sign that said area of refuge. And, uh, you know, I, of course, immediately saw that as like a Buddhist metaphor but it was this it was like a concrete bunker and uh, with really thick walls so it was like a place where you could go if there was an earthquake or the, a fire and if you can't evacuate um it is a building kind of on the edge of town you know this sort of rural urban interface so it's like on the edge of wilderness land and so if there's a fire out there you can't necessarily leave the building if it comes through quickly as we've been seeing in California a lot this year and the last few years um, so this area of refuge was a place that you could go, kind of a bomb shelter situation where if you hang out in that space, you'll be protected from whatever natural disasters befall you. And of course, in Buddhism, the, the, the disaster is samsara, um, the disaster we make of our lives through ignorance and um, planting negative karma through selfish and mean-spirited actions, big and small um, actions that we act, that we do. But um, you know, the longer we practice, we hopefully um, commit fewer harmful actions with our with our bodies, but also with our speech, the things that we say, and even in our thoughts. So when we're going for refuge from Buddhism, the what we're seeking shelter from is samsara. The the sort of mistakes that we make with uh, through ignorance, motivated by ignorance. Um, the three poisons in Buddhism, of course, are um, craving, uh, aversion, and, delu and delusion. Um, sometimes that's put as um, greed, hatred, and and, and delusion. Um, so it's you know inappropriately wanting things, thinking that they're going to make us happy 
or or inappropriately thinking that if we get rid of something, it'll help us, it'll help make us happy. And so craving and delusion are, are sort of the manifestations of ignorance, which is not really understanding how the world is working. And And this is what we're going to the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, to seek refuge from. And so when we go for refuge to the Buddha, we are not, um, you know, we're not asking Buddha to intercede on our, our behalf or sort of like come out of his Buddha heaven and rearrange things for us uh, to get us out of our jam. That's not how Buddhas work and that's not how Buddhist philosophy thinks about what our options are. So we're not praying to Buddha to, to come and help us out, but we are going to refuge to Buddha as the sort of ideal state of consciousness, the ideal, the, the pinnacle state of humanity, which is, or of all life, really, not just humanity, that we have the capacity to fundamentally change the way that our mind is working, fundamentally change our perception, and and realize a state of consciousness that is not afflicted by suffering, that is not um, ever doing things that harm people and are always, in fact, doing things to help people to the best of our ability. But Buddhas have have perfected that state and um, that state of mind. So when we're going to refuge, when we're going for refuge to the Buddha, the way I like to think of it is that we are we're going we're we're getting protection or shelter or solace from this idea that um, that there's a state of mind or or uh, a realization of reality that allows us to permanently end our suffering and to also be in a better position to help people through teaching and the kinds of small actions that we can do throughout our day um, interpersonally. Then we, the second of the three jewels is the Dharma. And we go for refuge to the Dharma by knowing that there is a methodology that Buddha and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have, have left behind for us, uh, like an instruction manual. Um, we know, we're fortunate that we know that such an instruction manual exists, that we have access to it, that we, um, that we have the faculties to be able to read and to learn, um, that we have the time and space in our lives to, um, practice meditation, that we can, um, take actions in our life to change our circumstances. And the Dharma is the is the instruction manual. And there's not just one path uh, within Buddhism. There's many different approaches to this. And so the Dharma is not just that there's one instruction manual or like a, a, a playbook that we can follow, but that, that wherever we're at, we have access to some kind of teaching or some kind of practice that helps us um, change the trajectory of our life. And the third, the, the third of the three jewels is the Sangha. And the Sangha is, um, when we take refuge in the Sangha, I think of this in two ways. One is that the, the Sangha is um, all of the people, you know, subsequent to the, the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, who um, have put these techniques into practice, who have done these uh, experiments, these thought experiments, and changed the way that their mind is working. Um, in other words, that the results are replicable, 
they don't just exist one time uh, for like Gautama wasn't just an outlier who was the one and only guy who figured this out, but rather that many people over thousands of years have put Buddha's teachings into practice and um, had the same kinds of uh, results and um, have left behind their instructions and their ideas and their thoughts, um, their innovations for us to use. And the other form of the Sangha is that we have a lot of people in our lives who are supporting us. Um, we have like the, we were talking about how we're in like our virtual gompa right now, but everyone who's here and, and participates in, in a Buddhist community that are all part of our Sangha. And I think that it also, Sangha also includes all of the people in our lives who are supporting us, whether they're following a Buddhist methodology or not. Um, we have a, you know, we're fortunate that we have um, friends and family and, you know, uh, counselors and mentors, people who um, are looking out for us, people who we can um, go to for support and ask for help when we're, when we're struggling. And I think of all of that as us, as the Sangha. And so when we're struggling, when we're having a difficult time, we, we go for refuge to the three jewels. We, we can remember that we're not in a permanent state and that, our, that we are ch- changeable in kind of a fundamental way. Um, that there's things that we can do. There's always a starting place. The Dharma is, leaves like the, set of the, the breadcrumbs that we can follow. And that there are people we can reach out to, both for inspiration um, teachers and and um, scholars and practitioners, um, both who are alive now and and historical figures, um, and also people who we can actually like get on the phone and call and and have a conversation with when we when we need that extra support. Um, so that's how I think of refuge, um, and and I like that. I want to think of it in a practical, pragmatic, accessible way, like they're like something that I can really sink my teeth into. Um, so that's why I take that approach to refuge. Um, the second thing that it's customary to do at the beginning of a Buddhist teach- teaching um, or practice is to set our motivation. And this is especially true in Mahayana Buddhism, but um, it's present in all of the forms of Buddhism, um, where we're trying to... One of the core problems, according to Buddhism, is selfishness, self-cherishing, to be more specific. Um, that we are kind of obsessed with ourself. And it's not, in a, it's not necessarily like in a narcissistic, egocentric kind of way. It's just that by virtue of being embodied, I experience my world and I don't experience your world. Um, and when I stub my toe, it's a big deal. But when you stub your toe, I'm not even aware of it unless we happen to be in the same room and there's a kerfuffle and then I react to it. But otherwise... I'm not aware of what you're suffering, what your experiences are. I don't know if you're hungry or thirsty or whatever. Um, And so just at a basic level, not at a narcissistic level, but just at a kind of a basic level, like my embodied existence is really important to me and other people's embodied existences are kind of like distant and abstract and sort of they exist as ideas. But unless I am really close to somebody, then other people kind of don't exist. Um, other than as like something I'm interacting with, but I'm me and everything else is just sort of out there, sort of like a hazy cloud of a hypothetical other. And that that's a fundamental flaw in our thinking 
according to Buddhism, that that basic level of selfishness is the root, one of the main roots of our problem because it's, it, it doesn't take into account the fundamental interconnected nature of all life and of all phenomena. Um, that that all, all beings, all life forms, seen and unseen, um, have a basic equivalent validity. Everyone's life is equally valid in a, in a basic kind of way as, as conscious beings to the various degrees that beings are conscious. You know, an insect has a different consciousness than a human being does. But in, within Buddhism, the suffering that an insect experiences is no less valid than the suffering that a human being experiences. And so my self-cherishing, my basic selfishness, is a fundamental misunderstanding of, of the nature of life, the nature of consciousness. And that fundamental misunderstanding is what's driving one of the things that's driving the um, craving and aversion that I want things that are going to make me happy and comfortable and I'm not that interested in what is going to make other people comfortable and happy and I want to get rid of the things that irritate me and I'm not really that concerned about the things that irritate you or make you uncomfortable and that misunderstanding is preventing me really from uh, from spiritual development and from expanding my consciousness to eliminate ignorance, which is this underlying problem for craving and delusion that's driving the self-cherishing is the ignorance. So given this, um, it's important at the beginning of every Buddhist teaching to set our motivation that it's while it's valid and relevant to be seeking the end of samsara for myself and um, nirvana, the permanent end of suffering for myself, it's insufficient as a goal. And the, the true goal, um, particularly in Mahayana Buddhism, is to um, see all beings' suffering as equally valid and set the elimination of suffering for all beings as the goal. And according to Buddhism, this is, you know, this is the bodhisattva path. This is the path of altruism, the path of uh, intense compassion. Um, and since that's going to be, we're, according to Buddhism, that realization is going to come at, at a certain level of spiritual development, whether you set it as a goal or not. But that realization will come sooner and have more potency and power in your, in your life and in your spiritual practice if you set it as your goal at the outset. So when we begin a, a Buddhist teaching or a Buddhist practice, we set our motivation as, um, I'm doing this not only for my own well-being, but I'm doing it because I want to become someone who is truly capable of helping others, or I have an increasing capacity of being able to help others, up to the ultimate point of a Buddha, which um, is teaching, um, helping others identify the roots of their suffering so that they can uproot that for themselves. At the beginning, I said a Buddha doesn't intercede in our behalf. They can't take our suffering away. But what they can do is guide us to identify the suffering in our own self so we can uproot it in our own self. And that's what our goal in Mahayana Buddhism is to become someone who can teach with such skill that we can, with everyone that we're interacting with, help them see how they can uproot and eliminate suffering in their own life. And that's a lofty goal, but... Nevertheless, that's what we're setting as our motivation at the outset. So that's refuge and motivation. 
Um, and I think it's worth taking extra time to look at it at the beginning of a class because it really, it is kind of the sine qua non. It's like we're setting the foundation for everything else. All of the, you know, the philosophical study and the textual interpretation and the looking at the what the Sanskrit is saying and things like that are all only relevant and valid in a container of refuge and bodhicitta. So in this class series, we're looking at the Heart Sutra. Um, and uh, I think it's worth briefly reviewing what we looked at the Heart Sutra in the last class to kind of reset the stage. The beginning of the Heart Sutra is about setting the scene and, um, um, you know, wh- wh- where what's the context of the teaching and why is the teaching taking place? Um, the the name of the text is um, I want to get it right Prajna Paramita Hridaya Sutram in Sanskrit and that's um, the perfection of wisdom Prajna Paramita um, Heart Sutra which is where it gets its name the uh, the Hridaya means heart so when we're saying Prajna Paramita Hridaya Sutram we're working backwards in the Sanskrit. So it's the sutra on the heart of the perfection of wisdom. Perfection of wisdom is the ultimate elimination of ignorance and the recognition of how the universe is really working, how our perceptual matrix is really working. And that's what the text gets into, and we're going to start looking at that more closely today. Um, we also um, met our characters. The, the sutra is, um, this, this version of the sutra that I emailed you is, um, doesn't have the customary uh, introduction of a sutra, which, sa- which begins with, thus have I heard. And that's Ananda who is narrating the events as he saw them. Um, we're dealing with a shortened version of the Heart Sutra. But um, we know from the longer version that this takes place on Vulture's Peak in India. Um, the Buddha is um, in front of the assembly of many um, monks and nuns and arhats and bodhisattvas and spiritual advanced spiritual practitioners. Um, Buddha is deep in meditation. He is practicing. He is practicing the practice of Prajnaparamita, and sitting next to him is one of the, his chief disciples, Avalokiteshvara. Um, the Lord who hears the cries of the world, the Lord who hears the suffering of the world. Um, you may be familiar with another name um, for Avalokiteshvara, which is Guanyin, the Chinese version of the of the same Bodhisattva. Um, and and Avalokiteshvara is characterized by his his or her. Um, He's represent, Avalokiteshvara is represented either as a male or a female, so there's an androgynous quality. Um, nevertheless, um, Avalokiteshvara is represented as having intense, intense compassion, this, this overwhelming desire to help other people alleviate their suffering, uh, an intense desire to want to free others from samsara. Um, and so Avalokiteshvara is the Lord or the Bodhisattva. Ishvara means Lord. And Avalokita, Avalokita is, the, is looking down upon the world with this, this evocative metaphor of, of um, being able to see the world and see the suffering, all of the suffering in the world 
um, and having this like heartbreaking love and compassion of wanting to to intercede and help. Um, so Avalokiteshvara is also in deep meditation. Um, remember, it describes it describes him as practicing the practice of the perfection of wisdom. Uh, the text goes to great lengths to emphasize that that the perfection of wisdom is a process, a practice. Um, practicing the practice of the perfection of wisdom. And so while um, uh, Gautama Buddha and Avalokiteshvara are deep in meditation, the audience is chilling out, and um, Shariputra, a question pops into Shariputra's mind. Um, Shariputra is another one of um, Gautama Buddha's chief disciples, and in many of the sutras, um, Shariputra is the, the guy who asks the question. So. Um, the Buddha in the sutras, Buddha almost always um, responds to a question. Buddha doesn't just launch into a discourse. He's always responding to something that somebody is asking. People approach him because he's this great philosopher, this great scientist of the mind, a psychologist, and uh, his reputation has spread far and wide throughout what is now Nepal and northern India, and people come to find him. He travels around a lot with his band of of um, arhats and monks and nuns, and wherever he goes, people come to see him and ask him for advice. And so there's generally somebody in the audience who um, has a question for, for Buddha. And in this sutra, it's Shariputra, who is often the one asking the question, and Shariputra wants to know um, how should one live their life, how should one think and approach practice if they want to um, develop the perfection of wisdom. Um, in all of the sutras, Buddha is the one who answers the question, but in the Heart Sutra, um, Avalokiteshvara answers the question. Buddha doesn't stir from his meditation, he doesn't speak in the sutra until the very, very end, um, but Avalokiteshvara responds to Shariputra's question. Um, this is crucial because this is a text on wisdom. Um, Prajnaparamita is, is a philosophical text on wisdom, which is the two, the two wings of, of uh, Buddhism, right? Wisdom and compassion. And you need both wings need to be equally strong and working in concert in, in order for the, the bird to take flight. And so one of these wings is wisdom, Prajnaparamita, and the other wing is compassion. So it's um, not at all incidental that um, Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, is giving the teaching on Prajnaparamita, on wisdom. That's a, um, that's a, a mythic quality of this sutra, but it's a very important philosophical point that the, the teachings on wisdom are coming from the heart of compassion. So this is the so this is setting the stage. Um, Buddha and Avalokiteshvara are meditating. There's uh, an uncounted number of spiritual practitioners hanging out, um, wondering what's happening. Shariputra asks a question, how does one practice the perfection of wisdom? Um, Avalokiteshvara, speaking from within the state of deep meditation, responds to Shariputra's question. And that is the content of this discourse. That's the content of the sutra, is Avalokiteshvara's response. 
So the the um, the response then is that um, Avalokiteshvara, the the line from the Sanskrit is Arya Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva Gambiram Prajna Paramita Charyam Charma No Vyavalokayatisma. So the noble Avalokiteshvara, the um, the great Bodhisattva. Um, is practicing the practice of Prajna Paramita and he looks down upon the world and this is what he says. What he sees is that Panchaskanda, this is the Sanskrit, Panchaskanda's tams cha svabhava shunyan pashyatisma. So he hasn't started speaking yet. The text is still telling us what um, what Avalokiteshvara is seeing, what Avalokiteshvara experiences from within Prajnaparamita as his meditative state. The, so the, sun, the Sanskrit, uh, Panchaskanda, um, that means the five skandhas. Um, skanda is a very interesting word in, um, in Sanskrit, and it doesn't readily translate into English and kind of capture the the spirit or the meaning of what the skandhas are. Um, we'll get into the skandhas later, but um, just in, for a shorthand, the skandhas are, the word skanda means something like heap or aggregate. These are English words that you'll hear if, if people are talking about the skandhas. Um, the skandhas are um, sort of psychological and physical faculties characteristics of consciousness and perception and the world that um, taken in total uh, create a person's being. Um, the, the, skandhas, the skandhas are um, form, physicality, um, sensation, perception, um, volition, and consciousness itself. And we'll talk about that more because he it, it comes up later in the text. But for now, that's he's what he what we need to know. This is one of the tricky things about the Heart Sutra as a as a text. Uh, this is just a brief aside. Is that there's a lot of technical terminology, a lot of um, Buddhist technical terms in the in this very short text. One of the reasons I like it and that I wanted to teach it here is that it's kind of a, a condensed shorthand for a great deal of Buddhist philosophical ideas. But that in order to really get the text, it assumes that you already know what those ideas are. So when he, right here, where it just sort of mentions the five skandhas, that is not a very, that's not very helpful unless you already have a sense of what the skandhas are and, and how they operate and what it means in Buddhism. Um, and in about two lines, he mentions those and we'll go into them. He lists them and he goes into it there. But there's several places in this sutra where they mention things in Buddhist philosophy that um, have a great deal of encoded information in them. And so this sutra is based on the assumption that you're already working with a pretty solid idea of, uh, of what a lot of Buddhist technical terminology means. Um, and so one of the things that I want to do in this class is look at the techni that technical terminology and kind of unpack it, describe what it means and what it's saying in Buddhism. And then we go one step further because the Heart Sutra then negates, the negates that. And that negation is very important. 
um, it's one of the things that makes the Heart Sutra a controversial text in Buddhist philosophy because it takes Buddhist philosophy and says a lot of it isn't real or isn't accurate. Um, and so for some Buddhist sects, that was seen as uh, an attack. It's like a philosophical attack on, on what they believe Buddha is saying and what Buddhism means. So this idea that Prajnaparamita comes in and negates a lot of philosophical ideas that are well-established in Buddhism, it makes it a challenging text intentionally. It's, it's, uh, the Heart Sutra is trying to be a challenging text, meaning that it's attacking what old-school Buddhists would be holding on to as, as what they think Buddhism means. But it pretty much goes right into, um, right into fifth gear because it says the, the Pancha Skandhas... Um, are um, svabhava shunyan. So here's our here's our big two. Here's a couple of our really big key words in Buddhism: um, svabhava and shun, shunya, or or usually we hear shunyata. So. Shun, shunyan um, means empty or void, possessing nothing, non-existent, from, from the Sanskrit. And shunyata makes it a process. It, uh, it, it, like ta in Sanskrit is like adding ness to an English word. So similarly, we have shunyan, empty, shunyata, emptiness. So that gives it a, a process orientation. But in this verse, where he's introducing this term shunya, um, he's simply saying that the the svabhava is empty. Now, svabhava is a, another key word in Buddhism because this is a, a thing that Buddha goes to great lengths to um, to attack, even in the early even in the early sutras, um, before the Mahayana sutras come on the scene or the Prajnaparamita sutras come on the scene. Um, the svabhava means self nature. Um, bhava meaning um, being. Uh, so one of the reasons I want to work from the Sanskrit, sorry, another slight aside. One of the reasons I want to work from the Sanskrit for this text is, is that um, Sanskrit words have a lot of possible meanings and they take on different tone depending on the context that they're in. So whenever we choose to translate a Sanskrit word as a one English word, we are maybe missing other possible connotations or usages of that Sanskrit word. So that's why I wanted to work from the Sanskrit and talk about many of the different possible translations for these words, because I think it's helpful for, helpful for us to have a more kind of broad scope or, or kind of holographic understanding of what the text is saying, um, rather than reading it in English and just immediately imposing one possible translation out of many. Um, so we hear this word svabhava, it's usually translated as self-nature. If you hang around in Buddhist philosophical circles, you'll hear the term self-nature quite a lot, um, or self-existence. Bhava um, is this word for existence, um, or existing. It can also mean becoming, so bhava has an emergent quality. Um, in other in other contexts, it can mean rebirth. 
So um, in the, the sort of Indian philosophical system that Buddhism emerges from, the, this idea that we're in the process of rebirth is, is um, largely accepted, not universally accepted, but it's largely accepted that we're going through a process of rebirth. When our physical body dies, our, our, what we think of ourself is dispersed, but our consciousness is reborn in a new body as a new type of creature, a new type of being. Sometimes that's a human being, but it's not taken for granted that we'll be reborn as a human being. So the process of rebirth is not uh, necessarily progressive. This is a, a common idea that we find um, Western, you know, Western philosophy, the Western worldview tends to be progressive, that we're sort of on a linear path from a less sophisticated world to a more sophisticated world. We're moving from a more primitive world to a more technological world. We're moving from um, a, uh, a, a, more, a more kind of regressed kind of conservative worldview to a more progressive liberal worldview. And there's sort of like the steady march of history as it moves from, as it moves from you know prehistory into you know and there, this, there's always the possibility of this utopian utopic future that's just around the corner. And um, sometimes when we encounter the idea of of rebirth, we ascribe this Western this Western philosophical idea of progression to it that. Your next rebirth is necessarily going to be better than your last rebirth because things are just kind of getting better. We're moving, we're progressing. But Buddhism and um, Buddhist philosophy would not agree with that, that we're in, a, we're in a cycle that continues until we learn how to interrupt the cycle. And um, our rebirth is characterized by the choices that we make in our life. Um, the type of mind that we cultivate, the way that we treat other beings, this is karma. The, the way that we treat others is what creates the karma that is going to lead to our future life, our future rebirth. So this word bhava has this connotation of rebirth. So it's not just, bhava doesn't just mean like you, you who you think you are right now, this body and this mind. The, the self-nature that is shunyan, that is empty, um, includes the whole rebirth process. Um, and, and another way of looking at bhava being or nature is the, the heart or the soul, um, the seat of our feelings. So this, this self-nature, svabhava, is... is um, has a broad range of possible meanings. Um, and it's also, uh, it's, the word svabhava is really kind of, again, it's kind of driving home a point, like practicing the practice of the perfection of wisdom, which bhava already means being. It already means existing. So svabhava is like self-existing, self-nature, um, that the being that it has is intrinsic to its being. Um, it's really driving home a point that what we're attacking is this, is this idea that we have that the thing really exists, that it has a, um, uh, a tangibility, a permanence, um, that we kind of reflexively believe that it has. 
like I was talking earlier about my my sort of basic self-conception where I'm me and everything else is just sort of a vague out there. All other beings are just sort of like, the, I kind of understand in principle that you exist, but like I know that I exist because I experience my existing, but I don't experience your existing. That me experiencing my existing is my reflexive assumption of my self-nature. Like, I really believe I exist because I I just know it. it. I can, like, it's like this visceral, immediate knowing that my self-nature is, is, is real. Um, other words for this that you will encounter, uh, or another major one that you'll, word, that you'll encounter is Atman. And in Buddhist philosophy, they'll, or in Buddhist texts, they'll call it on-atman, which the on is the negation. So on-atman, the, the non-self. And the word atman is often translated into English as self um, or, or, kind of a, or kind of a beingness. But um, in Buddha's time, atman had a technical term in the, in the other Hindu religions that were quite predominant at the time, which was that... Um, we have a corporeal soul, that we have a sort of subtle physical soul. And there was a, a philosophical school that had a lot of traction in those days that what was going through the rebirth process was this corporeal soul, the sort of physical essence of yourself. And even if your memories are wiped between your rebirth process, that there's like a physical part of you that's being reborn. Um, and so that's another thing that... Um, that Buddhism is, um, that's another kind of svabhava term that Buddhism is pretty direct in, in attacking. So, um, so Buddha is saying this svabhava, or I guess it's Avalokiteshvara who's, who's, uh, do, who's experiencing this in this story, in this text, we're seeing Avalokiteshvara's experience. Avalokiteshvara looks down, sees the world, looks down upon the world, sees all of the beings in the world, and he sees that the five skandhas, the, the various characteristics that make up their, their, their existence, um, are empty or absent or are lacking or don't have a svabhava, a self-nature. Um, and uh, th there's another word in this line, pashya, uh, pashyati, and pashya means beholding or rightly understanding. So as long as we're going through the, through the Sanskrit, we can go through almost all the words. So panchaskanda tamschas vabhavashunyan pashyatisma. Um, he rightly beholds, he correctly sees the... Um, the self-nature of the five skandhas are empty. So I think it's worth here taking a little more time to talk about what it means to say something is empty of self-nature. Um, because the Buddhist texts talk about it in a variety of different ways, and they're not different Buddhist texts and different genres of Buddhist texts talk about it in different ways. So they don't always give... Uh, um, this, this kind of grocery list of what emptiness means. But some of the different possibilities of what it means to say something is empty of self-nature or void of self-nature. Um, you know, we hear this word 
like emptiness is is a fairly accurate translation from Sanskrit into English or voidness. You'll also see voidness pretty common in translations of Buddhist texts. But um, it's difficult to from those words to, to get a sense of what emptiness means. Um, you know, voidness sounds like, you know, outer space when there's no stars and no light and no planets and it's just like this infinite blackness or something like that. And that's not at all what emptiness is talking about. It's not talking about that there's nothing there. It's not saying that there's nothing there. It's saying that the, the thing that we think is there, the thing that we reflexively believe is there, is, is a misunderstanding. And that's what emptiness is really trying to get at and what this text is really trying to get at. Um, so some of the ways that Buddhism, that Buddha and, and Buddhist texts talk about emptiness um, one of the main ones is impermanence, that we think of things as being enduring. Um, and, you know, when we think, when we, when we really sit down and think about it, we know that. We know that our car is going to break down eventually. We know that at any point you could drop a plate while you're washing dishes and it would break. And it's, and it's not permanent in that sense. Um, but in our kind of moment-to-moment -moment reflexive way of looking, of, of experiencing the world, the things seem to us to have an enduring, uh, an enduring existence to them. Um, you know, for example, I, when I put my teacup on my nightstand, I, I assume it's going to be there when I wake up in the morning. And that's my, like, unquestioning faith in its svabhava, in its self-nature. Like the cup, it just exists. But Buddhism is trying to get, get us to think about it at a deeper level, which is that things are always impermanent, but we are perceiving them as not impermanent because we're imposing our understanding of them as permanent on them. Oh, that's a word salad, isn't it? Um, Another, another way of looking at it is that things are not under our control. <coughs> that if things, uh, here's a kind of, a, the, kind of the way that Buddhism attacks what we think of as permanence, as svabhava, the self-nature to a thing, is if it were, if it had a self-nature, if the, if the teacup on my nightstand had a self-nature, it couldn't possibly break because it would be under my control. It would be permanent unchanging it would be it would its essence of teacup would be uh its self nature and and it couldn't possibly break because it would be under my control because i'm perceiving it as having the self nature of teacup <coughs> excuse me in fact here's the teacup i'm talking about it has a picture of a buddha on the bottom see my favorite teacup there's only one of them it has self-nature i know because it's in my hand right now and it can't ever break um no that's incorrect that's the self that's the self-nature that's not there um so other ways of looking at emptiness or other ways of looking at the self-nature that's not there um The, the way that I perceive something, the way that any of us perceive something, anything, everything, 
is a quality of our perception, not a quality of the object. If the teacup had self-nature, it couldn't be anything other than a teacup to anyone who perceived it. So if I, if my cat comes into the room, I don't ha have a cat, but if I did and my cat came into the room, the cat would not necessarily see this as a teacup. The cat wouldn't look at this as, oh, this is Mojo's special teacup, his favorite teacup. The cat wouldn't have any perception of that. They might per have a perception of it as something that's holding a liquid, but probably the cat's not gonna wanna drink my strong black tea. So it's not gonna see it as a teacup. Um, you know, not, like we can take these examples with anything. Um, take a musical instrument. Um, I have a ukulele right over there. My cat's not gonna see a ukulele as a musical instrument. Um, the, the, the quality of the ukulele as a musical instrument is a, a quality of my perception, not a quality of the object. And someone who doesn't know how to play a ukulele is going to perceive it as very different than somebody who does know how to play a ukulele. Um, they're going, someone who knows how to play it, somebody who knows how to play it better than I do, is gonna see it as something that's capable of producing beautiful sounds. Somebody who doesn't know how to play it is going to perceive it as, you know, maybe having the potential to do that, but that's not what it, it doesn't have that immediate visceral meaning to them. Those two people perceive the same object very differently. And so we're labeling things not in a conscious way, not where I'm looking at the teacup and saying, oh, this is teacup, and the cat looks at the teacup and doesn't see it as a teacup, maybe because they don't have the language to call it a teacup, but even at a more subtle level than that, that we're reflexively, continually reflexively um, seeing things as having the self-nature of what our perceptual apparatus forced by our karma is you know, demanding that we see it as. We, I, another way of putting at it is I can't look at the teacup and then say, oh no, that's not a teacup, that's a shoehorn or a doorknob, right? I can't just perceive it as different than I perceive it. I can't just take the label off and put a new label on. Um, that labeling is the self-nature of the thing, the, the, the falsely existing self-nature of the thing. That reflexive automatic labeling is my perception of its self-nature, which is not there. Okay, I think those, you know, the, those of you have been through the, the emptiness ringer, the emptiness class ringer before, know that this is something you can think about and contemplate and talk about a lot and not ever really quite get to the bottom of it. So, um, I don't want to get too exhausted. This whole text is about emptiness, so there, it, it comes at the same problem from different angles. Um, and so for right now, we just want to get kind of a working definition of the lack of self-nature, the self-nature that is empty, that the, the, the fact that the objects... The text is starting with the skandhas, which is pretty interesting because the skandhas are mostly psychological qualities, qualities of consciousness. Um, that the things that we think have a self-nature are empty of a self-nature. We just need to start having like kind of a way to work with that, a way to kind of chew on that as we go forward. Because 
it keeps go. That's not this, that's not the end. It keeps going. This this next line is the famous line from the Heart Sutra. And if you've heard the Heart Sutra, this is the one that that is the standout line. This is um, Avalokiteshvara speaking to um, Shariputra and the audience. In Sanskrit, he says, Iha Shariputra rupam shunyata shunyataiva rupam rupa napritak shunyata shunyataya napritak rupam yadrupam sa shunyataya shunyata tadrupam so there's a lot of rupas and a lot of shunyatas in that sentence um, but what the but it's the relationship that is important here which is in english here here he's setting up one of the major logical proofs that he's going to use that he he wants you to take this logical proof and apply it over and over and over again to all of the different things that we attack or deconstruct in this text um form is emptiness and emptiness is form form is none other than emptiness emptiness is none other than form whatever is emptiness that is form. Whatever is form, that is emptiness. So this is kind of ripping the bandage off um, because it's not enough to say that the, the svabhava is shunya. He has to go further and say form itself. He's, he's starting with form, but he's going to apply this to many different things. Form means our physical body. This is the first of the five skandhas, the pancha skandhas. Form means our physical body, but it also means the principle of physicality, the, the entire physical world. Everything that we interact with, that's, um, that we're interacting with as physical objects, all of that is form. So in this kind of Buddhist construction of the, the mind, the Buddhist construction of yourself, of your being, form is not limited to your own body. Everything that you see and interact with is, is technically your form. Um, the form of the world is your, your own body, your physical, your physical being, but it's also everything that you touch and interact with. And that's how physicality is, is uh, categorized from this philosophical perspective within Buddhism, because there's a lot of different approaches. But from here, when we're talking about the pancha skandhas, the five skandhas, all form is basically your body, the physical world. Your, your body is not distinguished from other physical objects from the perspective of the principle of form. So he's saying form is emptiness. Not form has emptiness, but form is emptiness. And emptiness is form. That's tricky because here he's saying it's not it's not just that it's not just that physical things are empty of their of self nature it's that the emptiness of the self nature of the thing is the thing and emptiness only exists as the emptiness of the thing that's empty of self-nature. Form is 
not other than emptiness, and emptiness is not other than form. There's, there's no... There's no form that's not empty of self-nature. And there's no emptiness of... There's no absence of self-nature except for the things that have... The things that are empty of self-nature. Whatever is emptiness, that is form. Whatever is form, that is emptiness. So he's putting it to us four different ways. Um, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Maybe six, six, three different pairs. Form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. Form is not other than emptiness, and emptiness is not other than form. Whatever is form, that is emptiness, and whatever is emptiness, that is form. So th this is one of the, I think one of the closest things that we find in Buddhist sutras where they are defining emptiness in as clear a way as they can. Now we're talking about form, but he, but Avalokiteshvara goes on to say, this is also true of sensation, of perception, of volition, of consciousness. And he goes on from there. But he ha but we but he sets up this I was gonna call it a dichotomy, but it's really an absence of, of a dichotomy where he's saying these things that we we can't we can't take form, we can't take existing existing things, which I'm putting air quotes around existing things, we can't take existing things without taking the em the emptiness of the existing thing, the lack of self-nature of the existing thing. The existing thing is its absence of self-nature. And absence of self-nature is the existing thing. And they don't exist in any way other than that. They only exist as their absence of self-nature. So one of the things we were I was talking about last week, which I think is worth revisiting here, is, is how do we use the text as a, as a practice manual? And this is one of the primary ways that we use the text as a practice manual. This is not, I mean, this is something I can, I can explain to you what the text says, and I can give you some different ways of approaching this puzzle. But we have to do the thought experiment in our own, in our own meditative process. We can, we can puzzle through it by thinking about it, we can, we can assess it and evaluate it and sort of run through what these things mean. But we also have to like bake it in at a deeper level in order to produce what's called a realization. Um, you know, this is like the two main branches of meditation practice, shamatha and vipassana. And shamatha is developing meditative concentration, right? That's, I don't know if you can see this thing behind me, the, the stages of meditation, the elephant and the monkey and the monk, maybe you've seen that image before. Um, it's uh, the classical Tibetan um, 
an instruction manual for developing shamatha, which is a high high degree of concentration, single point in concentration, the ability to hold your mind on an object and on a subtle object for long for long periods of time. But then shamatha, it, it's it's sister science, it's sister to meditation of of uh, shamatha, is vipassana, which is um, insight, realization, um, transformative transformative awakening experiences that change the way that your consciousness works. So this line, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Form is not other than emptiness. Emptiness is not other than form. Whatever is form, whatever is emptiness, uh, whatever is form, that is emptiness. Whatever is emptiness, that is form. That's something that we need to meditate on deeply until we can have you know experiences of realization of what it means and i think that's one of the main ways that this text can be used as a as a practice text um and it goes on and of course you know we have four more classes after this one where we'll go into these ideas more deeply and apply it in different ways to different um aspects of our consciousness, aspects of our existence, different ways of looking at how reality is working and then seeing how emptiness fits within these frameworks for how reality is working. But we need to stay with form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Because that's kind of a, a crucial a crucial understanding to to develop as we're as we're working on as we're working on developing prajna paramita perfection of wisdom. So uh, um, I think we'll we'll wrap up shortly, take a break, and then come back for some discussion. Um, but just a moment before we do that, um, we're going to just to set up what we're go- what we're going to do next, where the text goes next. Um, he goes into the five skandhas, which I've mentioned today, and we're going to go through each of those and talk about what they are and how they work together to create uh, a self, a person. But we also we're so we're going to go through the the five skandhas, but then we're also going to look at how at how this text is um, applying this concept of emptiness to the five skandhas. Um, he gets into a pretty interesting um, discussion of um, of how instances of consciousness have the characteristic mark of emptiness. That's the lakshana. Um, Lakshana is a complex concept, a Sanskrit word that doesn't have an easy translation. And I've even seen texts where translations, English translations, where the author chooses different English words for the Sanskrit word Lakshana. And so you're going through this text and he's using all these different words to describe what's one Sanskrit word. Um, Lakshana is a pretty interesting concept. And we're going to look at more of the characteristics of emptiness according to the Heart Sutra. 
And then um, that's, I think, we'll, that's probably what we're going to do. That's what the next class will be. And then we get further into sense perception, how, how sense perception works, um, how we think it's working, but also how it's, how it's really working according to Buddhist um, kind of, uh, you know, the sort of, the, you know, Buddhist neuroscience. I'm putting that in air quotes because that's not really fair to claim that Buddhism is making the same assertions of neuroscience, but um, we're going to look at how um, the sense organs work according to Buddhism. And then we, and then it also gets into the 12 links of dependent origination the, and the four noble truths. So there's, this is kind of the greatest hits. This text has like the greatest hits of early Buddhist philosophical um, treatise um, but one of the things that the text is doing, as I mentioned earlier, is that it is um, it's attacking these Buddhist ideas. It's attacking Buddhist philosophy. <coughs> um, so the Heart Sutra takes this corpus of Buddhist literature, the Buddhist sutras and Buddhist philosophy on Abhidharma, and then turns that whole thing on its ear and says, here's how all of that's not true and goes into why that is, which we started today with the form is emptiness and emptiness is form thing. And then later on, we talk about the realization of nirvana and how to practice prajnaparamita. So that's kind of the preview of what's left in the text. Now, it's also customary, um, before we end, um, to... to um, do a dedication of merit. Um, this is how Buddhist teachings and, and um, practices um, customarily, how we sort of close and, and um, have like a resolution. Um, the dedication of merit is, um, first of all, that we are recognizing, setting recognition, um, noticing that we are setting up making this a priority in our life that studying dharma and, and practicing dharma is a is a priority in our life that we are doing this to become better for others um, to increase our capacities of compassion and and altruism um, our capacity for kindness uh, even though the the heart sutra is largely a wisdom text it is still trying to get us deeper into our our kindness and our compassion and give us a strong recognition for why that's important uh, why it's necessary why it's crucial so taking the time to study this to contemplate it to meditate on these things is um, a powerful activity and and so we want to dedicate that to the well-being of others, um, living in a more peaceful, sane, caring society, for starters. Um, and because Buddhism has this, this framework for future rebirths that are driven by our karmic processes, that dedicating the merit is a way of investing the good karma that we've developed by studying and practicing dharma uh, and investing it towards a certain kind of goal. And customarily, we dedicate the karma to the well-being of others. Um, if, I, if I could or I can visualize that, 
the merit that I've generated here be planted in the hearts of other beings, that I could kind of replicate it and the karma, instead of getting planted in my own karmic mind stream, that I can like duplicate it and plant it in the hearts of everybody else so that they have the, the positive results. I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice the positive results for myself so that other beings, other people can have the results. They need it more than I do, so give it away. Um, and that actually makes it ripen faster and makes, makes the karma ripen more powerfully. Um, so we, we just recall that we want others to be happy. We want them to be free of suffering. And that's why we're doing this. And that's what we're dedicating our efforts to.